0: Hello, and welcome to 37th and the World, the official podcast of the Georgetown Journal of International Affairs. Vigia is a student-run lecture publication of Georgetown University School of Foreign Service. On 37th and the World, we dive into key global trends and speak directly with the experts working on the issues in areas ranging from conflict and security, human rights and development, science and technology, society and culture, business and economics, and global governance. International economic institutions, such as the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank, are fraught with controversy in large part due to interventionist policies that less wealthy states claim undermine their sovereignty. Jamie Martin, assistant professor at Harvard University, intervenes with a unique historical perspective into this debate with his recent book, The Meddlers, Sovereignty, Empire, and the Birth of Global Economic Governance which focuses on how international efforts to sway global capitalism emerge from elite political struggles and cooperation in the United States and Europe after World War I. In this interview, Juchia questions Martin on his book and potential paths of global economic governance that prioritize cooperation without dominance. To begin our interview, how did you first originally come about to write for meddlers?
1: So the basic question posed by the Meddlers as I began research on it was how did the international governance of capitalism first become politically imaginable and technically feasible? Um, And my interest in this question began at a moment, you know, kind of during the aftermath of the Great financial crisis and the Eurozone crisis, uh, a moment when the history of Bretton Woods was being reconsidered, um, and a moment when calls for renewing global economic governance uh, were picking up. Um, As the research progressed, though, I realized that the book was not going to just be a prehistory of Bretton Woods and to kind of uh, re-narrate well-known Uh, kind of uh, political contexts about the coming of what many really think of as this kind of great uh, original moment uh, of uh, global economic governance. Instead, the book ended up narrating uh, the 1940s as an important, though perhaps overrated moment in a a much longer and older history of struggle over how to govern the world economy. And I discovered in the research uh, that institutions began to emerge well before the Second World War um, that were doing things that are very familiar to us today. So for example, institutions making conditional financial bailout loans or institutions overseeing investments in economic development, institutions regulating commodity production, Um, on facilitating central bank cooperation and so on and so forth. So I I refer to in the book, these institutions as constituting a first wave of global economic governance, essentially. And these institutions tend to get missed in a scholarship on the history of global economic governance that really focuses overwhelmingly on the Bretton Woods Conference. And that tends to kind of overlook these older, more gradual, but nonetheless, lasting and significant shifts in the relationship of state power and global capitalism um, that occurred in the years before the Second World War. So ultimately, the book aimed to show how, you know, if we, if we really want to understand the actual birth of global economic governance, we need to look back to the First World War, in fact, and to the ways in which the First World War fundamentally reshaped the relationship of empire and the world economy and in ways that provided the crucial political backdrop to these first attempts to govern the world economy.
0: Yes, as you just mentioned, um, one of the main novelties of your book is its shift from the usual narrations of Bretton Woods' international organizations founded after World War II to the lesser known institutions and power brokers of decades prior, specifically World War I Allied Wartime Councils, the League of Nations Economic and Financial Organization, The Bank for International Settlements and interwar innovations on development and commodity production and exchange. Out of all this, what do you believe are probably the most valuable lessons and deconstructions that this reorientation offers for contemporary understandings of how our global economic governance came to be?
1: Yeah. So as I mentioned, you know the the kind of conventional way of narrating the rise of global economic governance is by dating its origins to the Bretton Woods Conference of one thousand, nine hundred and forty-four when the International Monetary Fund and the World Bank were created. Now, the kind of traditional way of narrating the coming of Bretton Woods is seeing it as a moment in which the United States uh, decides to kind of leave behind uh, kind of isolationism and to embrace this new role in upholding the global order. um, And that through kind of competition um, of on the one hand, John Maynard Keynes representing British interests and Harry Dexter White representing the US Treasury, you get this remarkable compromise where not only do you get the creation of these, these new very quite kind of, you know, novel in many ways, international economic institutions, but you also get this kind of theoretical reconciliation of globalization and national economic policymaking. Now, what do I mean by that? Uh, There's this idea at the time that was certainly embraced by someone like Keynes that many people writing about Bretton Woods kind of, you know, have held up as quite significant. This idea that states should be encouraged to rejoin a multilateral system of global exchange, while at the same time enjoying more freedom on the national level to experiment with welfare policies and policies of macroeconomic management, essentially Keynesian style policies. So the idea here is that for this limited period of time after the Bretton Woods system, you see this remarkable and unique arrangement whereby we get a kind of a moderate form of globalization paired with this newfound national policy autonomy. And it's for this reason that so many people, you know, as I mentioned around the the global financial crisis of 2007, 2008, and certainly since then as well, have you know called for a resurrection of Bretton Woods, have called for a Bretton Woods 2.0 or a new Bretton Woods, seeing in Bretton Woods something like an antidote to the kind of excesses of the era of neoliberal globalization that followed the collapse of Bretton Woods in the 1970s. What I argue in my book, though, is something different. I, I claim that the coming of Bretton Woods represented... A a moment in which some of the problems with preceding systems and practices of global economic governance were wrestled with and confronted, um, but really only partially overturned. And where they were overturned, they kind of came back uh, relatively quickly and well before the 1970s and 1980s and 90s. So, take for example the issue of conditionality, of of making financial assistance loans conditional on thoroughgoing programs of domestic austerity, for example. So this practice first emerges in the early 1920s in the context of a series of bailout loans that the League of Nations arranges for some member states, primarily in Central and Eastern Europe and primarily states that had emerged after the breakdown um, of the Habsburg uh, uh, Empire. Now, uh, these loans, while they were designed to help these states kind of uh, stabilize their currencies and uh, recover from hyperinflation, nonetheless proved to be very unpopular because of the degree of intervention they necessitated deeply into questions of kind of party politics and distribution within these states. So by the end of the 1920s, this kind of model of global governance is seen as being extremely controversial. It's something that few states will agree to. And when people, you know, kind of joining uh, uh, forces in the 1940s are designing the IMF, there's, uh, there's some agreement, or at least kind of um, a lip service is paid to the idea that the IMF shouldn't do this. It shouldn't be so browbeating. It shouldn't kind of bully states undergoing uh, extreme financial distress to commit to these programs of austerity or kind of, you know, monetary tightening um, at moments of economic downturn as the price of assistance, right? So kind of this old school League of Nations style conditionality is theoretically abandoned at Bretton Woods. What happens is that actually in practice, almost as soon as the IMF is up and running and making resources available to some of its member states, experiencing financial turmoil, that the practice returns it's not exactly the same thing but nonetheless the basic kind of rudiments of the practice are quite similar so you get a return of conditionality already by the 1950s and in the decades that follow um this expands so it doesn't take the rise of neoliberalism or this kind of you know the breakdown of the Bretton Woods system for this practice to re-emerge um uh, and so this is something that I think gets missed in some of these you know more nostalgic uh uh, kind of accounts of Bretton Woods and the way in which Bretton Woods represented this perhaps brief lived, but nonetheless remarkable kind of a uh, uh, compromise that that resolved some of these older tensions.
0: A frequent trend for historical scholarship in recent decades is to view current domestic and global inequities to the reinterpretation of these systems historical predecessors. Two particular works that come to mind to me are Paul Kramer's The Blood of Government on the U.S. colonization of the Philippines and Christine M. De Memory Lands on King Philip's War. Would you consider your recent work a contribution to this extensive, albeit controversial, controversial intellectual practice?
1: One of the principal historical claims of the book is that when these early institutions of global economic governance were first emerging, uh, 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 this process involved a series of adaptation of older practices of empire or selective cooperation with powerful empires seeking to protect their interests. Uh, uh, These institutions were designed by and large by internationalists, many of whom sought to do things differently in a world that was kind of slowly um, turning against Um, Empire, But nonetheless, the institutions that they created in in many fundamental ways recapitulated 19th century practices of empire in the context of a world that had been profoundly changed by the First World War, in which self-determination was becoming much more powerful as a political rallying cry around the world, a world that was becoming um, more democratic, and so on and so forth. Um, So the way that these first institutions acted was... Uh, 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 according to a set of old assumptions that were common to imperial understandings um, from an earlier era. Um, And one of the kind of principal political questions faced by these institutions was how um, and whether they would be able to adapt these old imperial practices to a world that had undergone profound changes. Um, Some of these assumptions that I referred to included the idea that not all states even states that were formally sovereign actually in practice were to enjoy a full right um, of non-interference in their domestic affairs. Or the idea that poor debtors on the so-called peripheries of the global economy could be bullied until they paid exorbitant interest on their sovereign debt. Or the idea that by contrast, strong states were to be immune from equivalent external pressures. These were all very kind of common assumptions that guided the way in which these institutions in many instances acted despite the kind of self-professed um, commitments uh, made by many uh, liberal internationalists. Now, one of the claims of the book, as you kind of alluded to in your question, is that global economic governance today is still marked by some of this kind of old imperial assumptions. It still has imperial baggage that it needs to shake off. And this fact can sometimes be downplayed in in memories of, of Bretton Woods and the supposed achievements um, uh, of the creation of the Bretton Woods institutions and their kind of supposed moving beyond an older world of empire to a kind of more cooperative US-led world order. One thing that I think these accounts often fail to recognize um, uh, are these deep continuities um, present throughout and after the Bretton Woods system um, with an earlier era of empire dating back at least to the 19th century.
0: Despite your identification of this um, power asymmetry historically built into the interwar institutions and the reproduction in current mainstays of global governance, you still strongly hesitate against reactive nationalism or autarky. At the same time, you maintain that sufficient reform requires far more than minor adjustments to how these massive mechanisms operate. What are some examples of, quote, the ambitious thinking about how to design a new architecture of international cooperation that goes beyond the institutions of the 20th century and legacies of empire that you urge at the end of your book? What could this look like in the 21st century?
1: So the book, as you mentioned, should not be read at all as embracing or encouraging any kind of sovereigntist or nationalist alternatives to global governance. Quite the contrary, Uh, to the extent that the book does have a clear kind of normative uh, upshot, uh, uh, it's to renovate and to rethink and to reimagine what global economic governance should look like um, for the 21st century. Um, uh, and in ways that doesn't require looking back to the institutions of the 20th century, which were created um, in a world of empire and were designed to reflect the global dominance of of the newest empire on the scene, namely the United States. Now, there's a lot of mobilization around these questions um, today, particularly among political leaders and activists um, in Global South countries. Um, So take the example of Mia Motley, uh, the prime minister of Barbados, who has recently been pushing for fundamentally new ways of thinking about how to channel um, uh, capital via multilateral institutions for development and green transition projects, um, and doing so in in ways that do not recapitulate the old kind of heavy-handed conditional lending done by states like the IMF Um, or the World Bank. There are calls by officials at UNCTAD um, and others for creating new independent sovereign debt authorities and new ways of handling debt reconstructions, particularly um, uh, uh, kind of issues that are particularly pressing at the current moment, um, given the extreme debt distress faced by many low and middle income countries after the COVID pandemic and during this era of rising interest rate Uh, hikes by the U.S. Federal Reserve. Now, it should be noted also that there is uh, a growing competition among lenders in the world economy, and the kind of global politics of debt is far more complex than perhaps ever before, as you see this kind of huge number of different actors, um, you know, kind of making claims today. Uh, uh, This makes uh, debt restructuring today far more complex and perhaps difficult than than uh, in the past, but I think it also means that there's potentially an opening for new institutional practices and perhaps even for new institutions themselves, that this competition um, potentially provides leverage for actually um, pressing for real change. I think it's a sign of how seriously out of date some of our international economic institutions and their practices see that you even see in the pages of the Financial Times or among leading officials in the IMF itself, a real recognition um, that uh, kind of business needs to be done differently. And that particularly when it comes to the politics of global debt, that we do need fundamentally new ways Um, of of thinking about how to go forward. So I I resist a little bit in the book saying exactly what these solutions would be. Um, uh, uh, Instead, what I hope is that the history I provide um, is helpful in in clearing some ground to think creatively and to think anew about what an entirely different, an entirely new system might require that overcomes some of the, the long lasting problems and tensions that I chart in the book.
0: Your next book will focus on how World War I shaped trade, finance, and other economic aspects outside the war's central battlefield in Europe and the Middle East. Do you foresee or have you already come about um, any archival insights that will reframe current views of international economic systems in a manner similar to Medler's?
1: So as you mentioned, the book that I'm working on now is a history of the economic shockwaves created by the First World War as they radiated out to touch every corner of the earth, essentially, sparking Um, uh, Extraordinary economic and social crises nearly everywhere, from West Africa to Latin America to the Caribbean and the Pacific and elsewhere. Now, one of the contentions of the book, or at least one of the kind of framings of the book in my mind at the moment, is that this world, you know, over 100 years ago, was in certain key respects quite similar to our own world today. Um, This was a highly interdependent, highly interconnected world where a shock that occurred in one place could potentially be transmitted quickly Um, uh, throughout the entire system and with unpredictable and dramatic effects. Now, it has long been common to claim that the First World War represented a profound crisis of globalization, and that kind of what the war does is that it sets into motion this process of deglobalization, that the world economy kind of um, is is so destabilized that in its wake you see um, a kind of a retreat from the kind of uh, highly integrated 19th century world economy that had existed before um, its outbreak. Instead, what I do in the book is I show how actually the war produced a situation of, of interdependence under strain. The world economy was put under enormous pressure, but it doesn't break apart. Um, it doesn't deglobalize in some fundamental sense, unless we mean by that simply that uh, uh, kind of lower or lower volumes of to- total global trade. Now, this framing I think might be relevant to some issues that people are concerned with at the moment about this kind of question of deglobalization. Um, and whether right now in the world we're kind of standing at the precipice of an era of deglobalization, um, one thing that I try to show in the book is how you know we shouldn't necessarily think of globalization as just this kind of black and white thing—you either have it or you don't, you have more of it or you have less of it. Um, instead, the world economy, at times of enormous political strain and conflict, um, can be reconstituted and rewired so the, you know i think of the analogy here of like a like a brain an injury to the brain um, um, in the wake of the injury the brain will rebuild connections between synapses right but how also in the process of rewiring Um, This can produce enormous distress. Um, And and in the context of this book, I show how as the world economy is rewired by the war, this produces these moments of incredible turmoil and hardship around the world. So the book is perhaps unique in, in offering an account of the war years that really doesn't focus on the war itself in Europe and in the Middle East, the kind of principal theaters of conflict, but that instead looks at these indirect and unintended consequences of the war um, elsewhere. Um, And and really, its aim is to offer a kind of a detailed case study, perhaps, of how a few years of extreme crisis forces this highly interdependent global system to shudder and to shift, but not to collapse fundamentally. Um, And how this kind of interdependence under great strain not only affected high politics and business, but also daily life around the world, kind of lived experience of people in many different places.
0: This was 37th in the World. Thank you to Jamie Martin. Please be sure to subscribe and leave a comment and rating on whichever streaming platform you use. To read this interview and other insightful interviews and articles, please check out to Thank you for listening.